The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. What it will 
for the past three days, I've been teaching from the scripture on the school of the Holy Spirit. But frankly, the teaching is incomplete if I don't share some stories of very real people who have walked in the school of the Holy Spirit and who have had the victory. I'm going to share with you today a story. I urge you to listen carefully. You may have heard this story. It is by G.C. Bevington, who was a holiness evangelist in the early 1900s. He was a man who knew how to, quote, pray through, unquote. He received direct answers from heaven, but they were not cheap and they were not easy. We need those answers from heaven. We need a miracle. I'm going to share with you one incident in his life. He had no home of his own. He stayed with people wherever he held meetings. His course was directed through much prayer, hours of prayer, waiting upon the Lord. And in response to that waiting upon the Lord, he would then act according to the word God gave him. He's staying in the home of a half-converted family to hold meetings. But he becomes desperately ill. He is an older man at this point in his life. And he now is deathly sick. He wrote, Monday morning I was still worse. The man of the house said, I'm going to send the doctor up as soon as I get to work this morning. His wife said, I don't believe Brother Bevington believes in having a doctor. I don't care what he believes. I'm not going to have that old crank die on my hands. I then could hear nearly all ordinary conversation, but this severe sickness had deafened me so that I couldn't hear, so the sister wrote everything down for me. Well, I began to pray as best I could. I prayed that no doctor would come. But I was so sore, I was having such severe pain, that I could make but little headway in praying. Though I did my best, praying that no doctor would come, as I was pretty sure I would not take any of his medicine. The man of the house returned from work, but no doctor had been there. I was still much worse. I was now not able to move any of my body. A young boy kept a good fire going for me in the stove, the weather being very cold. They belonged to a meeting house, and that was about all. John was too tired to make a trip after the doctor, 
So my prayer was answered up to that time, though I was suffering with a high fever. And yet my feet and my legs were freezing. Tuesday morning, about 5 a.m., the doctor came. He stepped in the back way through the back door. As he stepped to the door of my room and looked at me, he threw up his right hand and hollered for the sister. He turned to her, and I could see that he was giving her quite a tongue lashing, I suppose censoring her for not sending him in on Sunday or Saturday. He said, that man won't live 48 hours. He stood at a distance. He eyed me very closely. He stepped back to the kitchen table and left five different kinds of medicine. He said, if he isn't better in four hours, he is a gone man, as he had typhoid fever in its worst stage, and at his age, everything is against him. As soon as the doctor was gone, the woman came in with a glass of water and the medication from the doctor. I said to her, what is that? Why, she said, this is what the doctor left to help you. Well, I read the information on what the doctor had left. I said, I can't take that medicine. Just throw it outdoors. I will not take it. She looked quite disappointed. Brother Bevington, she said, for my sake, Please take this medicine. Well, I tell you, to resist man or the doctor was a small thing, but to resist such a plea as this was about the hardest thing I'd met for a long time. But I reasoned with her, and I said, I don't believe I'm going to die, or I would have died already. But the fact that I was getting worse all the time was poor encouragement to think that I was going to get well. I was then alive only because of my willpower, as she said. But I persuaded her to take that medicine out and let me live or die. Nine o'clock came. That was my time limit, and the doctor had ordered her to phone by that time. But she had no good news for him and did not send word. At 9.30, he phoned, Well, doctor, he's much worse if such a thing is possible. He absolutely refuses to take any medicine. Well, that infuriated the doctor, so he went to the officers and tried to get them to come, and they said yes, the next day they would come. Well, tomorrow they said they're going to come and take me to the pest house. That was their place of dying in that day at the 1900s. She informed me of the conclusion of the physician and the officers of the law. I knew that if I could scarcely keep warm here in this warm room with pillows and blankets and a huge fire, I would never survive a mud road on a 12-mile jump to the pest house. I tried to rally. I tried to pray but it seemed I could not get still. I said to the young boy who was helping me, get a chair 
If your mamma can spare, get another comforter, and put it on the chair. When all was ready, I said, Now, son, you'll have to go real slow. Take your time. The young man was kind and tender with me, but I fainted before getting one leg on that chair. The pain was so great. However, I soon rallied and persuaded him to renew the attempt. He hesitated until his mother came in, and together they got one leg up. But while getting the other up, I fainted again, and this time it was nearly an hour before I regained consciousness. The mother coming in pronounced me dead. After rallying, I had some trouble to get them to renew the effort. I said, I feel I must have the legs up for two reasons. First, to arrange so it my legs can hold my Bible. And second, it'll be warmer for me. So they went to work. They put a board under my leg. And they, they finally forced it up. It was now 4 p.m. on Wednesday. Now I said, lay my small Bible carefully on my legs. And they did. Now I said, draw my right hand down upon the Bible, which they did, and I promptly fainted in pain. Forty-five minutes later, I regained consciousness, and I had them try again. By 6 p.m., my hand was on the Bible. At 7 p.m., I said, now raise my hand carefully, just the tips of my fingers. They did so, but I fainted out with the pain. At 8 p.m. before I rallied, when I let them I let them rest until morning, the boy sleeping in a chair beside me, keeping the coal fire going. And then I could see, but a little, but I could see. And I began to read the promises in my Bible. I was saying, Thou art my healer. Right here, if anyone does not believe in a personal devil, I want to say that there is one for sure, for I saw a dark form and heard a voice saying, Yeah, you have a fine healer. I'd like to have such a fine healer as you have here. Here you are and can't move an arm or a limb. You have pneumonia. It's at its worst stage. You're getting worse all the time. You can't even move your head. You're dying. The last word, head, impressed me. I'd not even tried to move my head, but I yelled out, You are a liar! And I undertook to move my head, but I fainted, and for one hour I lay as a dead man. When I rallied, I could see better out of my right eye, though I was still blind in my left eye. I was reminded that this was the last day before the pest house, as they did not say what time they would be there to take me to the pest house, I prayed that it would not be until after dinner. Well, Satan had me in a pretty close quarters. I could not move my head, but I coaxed the boy to work my fingers, and I noticed as he raised them an inch, it hurt scarcely at all. So I felt I was getting the victory. I could see real well out of my right eye now. My left eye was still blind. At 10 a.m., they phoned that they would be there at 2 p.m. to take me to the pest house.
Well, while I could not move a muscle and was in great pain, yet I could plead the promises better. So I just stuck to it until 12 noon, and by the use of a straw, I took some soup. At 1 p.m., while pleading the promises, I was without any pain. I said, now raise my hand. The boy did so, one inch, two inches, three inches, and I shouted, hold on, and I began to praise God. The sister came in, and I said, I'm getting the victory. I said, let go of my hand. He let go, and it dropped, but there was no pain. Raise it again. He did so. One, two, three, four, five, six inches. I shouted, oh, glory, raise it up. Raise it up to 12 inches. Now lay it back on the Bible. Now listen to how he describes this. Then I felt the power of the blessed Lord coming through my body and my left eye opened and I could see. I raised my right arm but fainted and the woman came in again and pronounced me dead. She seemed to be determined to have me dead but in 30 minutes I revived and began pleading the promises with greater energy than any previous time. Satan again came to me with the same word as before. I said, I can move my neck. I offered up a prayer, and I repeated 1 John five, fourteen and 15. I moved my head, and it did not hurt. I raised my left arm for the first time, and I felt no pain. I raised my right arm again, shouting, I am healed. I kicked the comforters off my legs, and out of the chair I came, leaping and yelling like an... But I was very weak. In that exaltation, I was soon exhausted and would no doubt have fallen to the floor, but the sister caught me, and she got me seated once more. She then looked out the window and said, They're here. Well, that would give me a few more minutes to rally, so I pled the promises for strength. It did not come as rapidly as I had hoped, but I kept repeating First John five fourteen and 15. Here they came through the kitchen. If ever I saw a demon, the first man was one. He was completely unsympathetic. He was crabbed. He was hard-looking. He stopped in the kitchen door, and the sister talked to him. As I'd gotten my hearing back, I could now hear what she told him. She said, he claims to be healed. He was just up and out of the chair, but overexerted himself because he's so weak. He hasn't eaten anything for six days. I seemed unable to speak, but could see the fendish look on his face. But just behind him was another man. Oh, such a nice-looking man. His face was pleasant and so sympathetic. I just longed to get to him but could not move. I could see the main officer shake his head and hear him say, I take no stock in that nonsense. Well, I 
I rallied. My strength came. I said, I'm a healed man. I'm healed, but I lack strength. He'd said that he would not go without me as it would he would have to come back after me, which would incur expense for him on the second trip. I said, here, mister, I have a watch that will sell anywhere for $25. I'll let you have that watch, and if I'm not here at your office at 10 a.m. tomorrow, and you have to come get me, the watch will pay for the second trip. At that, this pleasant-looking man stepped in, and I offered him my hand. I wanted to get to him so badly. He said to the officer, Take his watch. I believe he will be at your office. So he persuaded him to go without taking me to the pest house, where surely I would have died. I noticed them out at the gate talking. The kind man said, You don't want to take this man's watch. I really believe he's all right. Now let me take his watch back to him, as I believe he's had a very hard struggle and needs some sympathy and encouragement. Well, if ever a man spoke the truth, that man spoke it that time. I could see there was sympathy in his face. Now, if you have to come back, I will pay the extra $12, he said to the other officer. So in he came with a watch. Well, all I could do was take his hand and squeeze him. I'll never forget how that kind act helped my heart be encouraged. Everyone had been against me, even the sister. Well, I rested all day. I had a good night's rest. That was Friday night. Saturday, I started out, but being weak, I was very sensitive to the cold. I had to put on two overcoats, which loaded me down. The boy went with me. We stopped 16 times to rest in going those three miles I had to walk to his office. But I had to get there. At just 16 minutes before 10 a.m., as we came near his office, we saw he had nine steps to go up, and I stopped and I said to the young man, Oh, how can I ever make it up those nine steps? I'll never forget how that young man looked up so appealingly, and he said to me, Ask Jesus. Well, I did. And the kind man was sitting in the window, and seeing me, he came down just as we got to the steps. Two men were passing, and he said, Gentlemen, please help us get this man up these steps. Note now how God was there, and he saw me through. They had a doctor there examine me, and he said, There's nothing the matter with this man. He's just very weak. So they let me off. And the kind man said, When I got home yesterday, I told my wife about you, and she was very much interested and said, I believe that man will be there at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. You take the horse and the buggy down to the office with you and bring him here for dinner. As soon as we got to the buggy, I said, Are you a saved man? He began to cry. No. No, I wish I were. 
My wife is a backslider, too. We're both backsliders. We've tried and tried and tried, but haven't been able to get back to the Lord. We've been going to every altar for years. We've heard of your meetings out there, and we'd planned to come. As we came near the gate, out his wife came running to the buggy, and she gave me her hand and helped me down. She just carried me right into the house. Oh, I knew that God would answer your prevailing prayers and heal you. I'm so glad. I'm a miserable backslider, and I felt that God would heal you, and then you could prevail in prayer for husband and me to get us back to God. And I have a sister living half a mile from here. I went to see her yesterday, and she broke down and began to weep and say, Bring that preacher over here. Well, while I was very hungry, and I was weak, and the dinner was on the table and steaming, I said, Do you want to get back to God badly enough to get down here and stay until you meet the conditions? Now let me stop. You know what the conditions are. I've shared them with you all week. Number one, you have to have an interest in following Jesus. Number two, you have to say no to yourself. Number three, you have to take up your cross and be crucified with Christ. And number four, you have to make the determination that you would rather lose the world rather than your soul, that you will walk completely in the glorious freedom from sin with Jesus, and that you will turn aside from every known sin in your heart, and you will gain the victory by praying through and confessing the name of Jesus, and he will give you the victory. That's what Brother Bevington is talking about when he says, are you willing to fall down right here and stay on your face until you meet the conditions. She said, yes. And down she went on her knees, and the husband also, and I with them. We pleaded the promises. Now, do you remember what time this was? It was about noon. We pleaded the promises. And at 4.15 in the afternoon, he arose with shouts of victory. He grabbed me, and he literally carried me all over the house, yelling at a tremendous rate. And at that, she got the victory. And she jumped up and began to dance. We had a blessed time. We had dinner, the first meal I'd eaten in six days, and got the dishes washed up at 6 p.m., then we got into the buggy and went over to her sister's house. And the wife jumped out of the buggy and shouted, Hallelujah! And kept it up until the sister came running out crying. And she threw her arms around her, pleading for us to come in and pray for her. We all dropped down on our faces in that kitchen, as it was nice and warm. And we went to praying. At 8 p.m., the husband of the unsafe sister came in, 
all black and dirty from his coal job, mining. The wife jumped up and threw her arms around him, saying, I'm trying to get back to God. Will you help me, husband? Will you help me? He began to cry. And he got down on his face with all of us. And they met the conditions. He got through first. About 10.30. He dropped down at his wife's side and he pleaded for her. He pleaded with Jesus for her. And finally at 5.20 a.m. She too got through. She met the conditions. This was on a Sunday morning. I was now much stronger and walked the floor and praised God until breakfast was ready. Oh, how precious the Savior was then. He'd not only healed me, but he'd reclaimed four souls inside of 15 hours. We just magnified Jesus. I sat down at the table but could not eat. I had to get up and walk, bathed in tears of joy. Jesus was so real so precious that I just feasted on his presence. We all fell on our faces in great adoration and praise until each one had poured out his heart in praise. That was the most wonderful prayer and praise service. We continued praying and praising until 11.30 that morning. And then the hostess said, Now, brother, we must eat something as you did not eat with us this morning. So I did eat, but there was such a continual bubbling up in my spirit of praise going up from my heart. It seemed that I began to realize what God had done for me. He had healed me. He had returned my strength. Well, now came some very remarkable workings of God. I remained there over the Sabbath, preached that night, had a meeting for, for everything ran into a praise service. There was not much preaching done. We retired at 12 o'clock Sunday night. All of those four who were saved were seeking entire sanctification all day Sunday. When I got up Monday morning at 7 o'clock, I found that all four were still in the kitchen where they'd been wrestling with God all night. The girl that had gotten saved in our first meeting on Saturday was with them seeking sanctification. I remained all day Monday, wrestled all night Monday night, and by nine o'clock on Tuesday morning, the five had swept through to complete victory. I remained there until after dinner and felt strongly impressed to go back to John's. And on my information, these people, they all remonstrated and said, Brother Bevington, we want you here for a month yet. While we were at the dinner table, the Methodist preacher, having heard what had transpired, stepped in and joined them in pleading for me to remain, offering his church for as long as the Lord would lead me to accept it. Well, that was somewhat perplexing as these five who had been reclaimed and sanctified had relatives who were backsliders, and the plea seemed to be based on good reasoning. But I went out to the barn and weighed the matter carefully and prayerfully. But all God would say was go back to John's. It was all I could get. 
The Methodist preacher said, we'll let him go. When he gets through out there, we'll have him come back here with us. In the meantime, we will circulate what God has done, and we'll be in much better shape for God to do his work. So Wednesday morning, this nice man took me back to John's. We gave out tracts and advertised the meetings on the way out. We got out to John's just as he was coming in from work, and of course, he had to admit the power of God in my healing. You're not expecting to hold any more meetings here, are you? I said, yes, we want a meeting tonight. He said, are you able to preach? Now, here came an opportunity to use a little strategy. I won't read you the whole account, but he got John, who was very opposed, to come and help him with this series of meetings. Now, I have to share with you another part of the story. I don't have time to share it all with you. All he could hear was go, go, go. Well, I thought that meant I was to go get the train and go to my next meeting place. They all pleaded with me not to go. But the next morning, John hitched up the wagon to take me to the depot, which was 12 miles away. I bade them all farewell. I had about one-third of my anticipated railroad fare, but I knew God would provide. We'd gone about three miles when John looked back and he said, I declare that's Jim. I said, who's Jim? Now, here's the rest of the story. When I got to the church, they were going to hold first a testimony meeting. So I turned the services over to their class leader. They were Methodist. I could hear some then, but not sufficient to get their testimonies clearly. I could not understand the proceedings as my wonder increased. I finally said, Who are these people who are testifying? Why, they're all members here. The superintendent, the class leaders, the officers of the church, they're all sanctified. But by the time the seventh one got up, I was in doubt as to their having a right to testify and noticed the woman laying a quid of tobacco on the bench as she got up to testify. I endured until the ninth one, and I could stand it no longer. I stood up, and I said to the man testifying, Mister, you sit down. He said, I don't have to sit down for you. I rose to my feet. I pointed my right index finger at him, and I said, you sit down now. He dropped like a shot calf, but grabbed his hat, and then he started for the door, and all but 11 followed him. About 80 people left the meeting. Well, I did my best to preach to that little handful of people. But then as I left the meeting house, the crowd was all standing outside and they were yelling at me. As we stepped off the porch, the man that I'd ordered to sit down rushed up at me and he gave me a tongue lashing like 
no man had ever given me before. I just said, come on, everybody, let's go. He and others followed for some distance, calling me about all the names in the catalog of vengeance. Now, let's return to where John in the wagon had said, I believe that's Jim. When I asked who Jim was, he said, the man you called down. He's my cousin. I see that he is bareheaded and yelling for me to stop. But, Brother Bevington, you need not fear as we have this loaded whipstock here, and I'll protect you even if he's my cousin. Well, here he came on horseback, shouting and yelling, Stop! Stop! Wait! And so on. So John stopped the wagon, and here he came, looking like a wild man. He rushed to the wagon, he threw the reins over the brake wagon, and he plunged into the wagon and threw his arms around me and said, Oh, Brother Bevington, pray for me. I've been in hell ever since Saturday night. I said, Do you really want God? Oh, yes. Bad enough to get down here in this wagon on this public road and plead your way to the cross? Yes, yes. So I said, Drive up along the fence, John. So he did so, and we got down, he on one side of the wagon and I on the other. And in about an hour, he burst out, Oh, God, oh, God, have mercy, have mercy, oh, God, save me from this awful hell that I'm rushing into. And he said, Oh, Brother Bevington, come over here. Oh, come over here, take my hand, I'm slipping into hell right now. Oh, come over here, Brother Bevington. I said, No, I won't come over, you repent. Oh, brother, I'm going to hell. Well, if you had your just dessert, you'd have been there a long time ago. Repent. Repent now. Well, we were there by that fence from about 9 a.m. until 4.30 p.m. Three times, some of his relatives came along, but they could not get him out of that wagon. One of his cousins, a wealthy farmer, came along with a flock of sheep and said to John, Who is that in the wagon? Well, that's Jim. What in the world is he doing there? And Jim yelled, I'm getting to God. Well, the cousin made all sorts of threats against me and all of us, but Jim stayed in his place until he actually prayed through and met the conditions. Then he jumped up yelling and shouting, and he grabbed me. He carried me all around for nearly an hour, then jumped on his horse and started back. Well, I said, I guess I can't make any train now. I guess I might as well go back. Now, many will say to me, Brother Bevington, I thought you were going to the depot. How would God lead you to the depot and not get you there? Now comes an important lesson for all of us. We must remember that we are only human beings and that God does not always reveal his plans ahead, but leads us as he sees best. Had God undertaken to explain to me that he would have, that he would get Jim out there in that wagon on a public road, subject to all that embarrassment, it was necessary for him to go through this in order to knock his religious churchanity out of him. His long membership, his testimonies, all of his religion from the last ten years was nothing. Well, God undertakes 
to do his work, and it's not for me to understand how he does it. It's only for me to obey what he tells me to do. He told me to go, and he allowed me to interpret the go as I saw fit, as that would make no difference to his plan. You see, he took a shortcut to make many points necessary to getting Jim saved. God knew that I was nowhere near done in that vicinity, but he knew that it was necessary to get that leader completely transformed and broken all to pieces so that he could use him. Now, as Jim was on horseback, he could make better time than we. So as we drove into John's barnyard, out came Jim and his wife. She jumped off the house porch. She cried. Oh, Brother Bevington, forgive me. I've been in hell ever since that Saturday night. We all went in the house, and we went in the dining room, and we fell on our faces. Now came one of the most remarkable seven life, right there in that man's house. I never took off my clothes. I never preached a sermon. I just lay day after night on my face, praying, weeping, groaning, pleading, imploring, beseeching, besieging the throne of God in behalf of the Methodist membership of about 300 people. Some would get through, and they'd strike out for their friends, and they would come in wagon loads, bringing their provisions and feed, and often their cows, and they would stay until the whole load got saved and sanctified. Then they would strike out after someone else. This was kept up for seven weeks, day and night. No one was eating but one meal in the 24 hours, and yet someone was always out in the kitchen cooking all the time. I got such a burden that I could not get up, but just lay there, and they would come in time once in a while and feed me like they would feed a baby. Well, they claimed that there were over 400 people saved. Most of them prayed through to victory. Of all the times I've ever, that I've ever seen, this beat everything I'd done. Some were praying, others were crying, others were testifying, some were preaching, others were shouting and make, making restitution. I just lay on my face, bathed in tears. And when it was all over, I looked as though I'd gone through a hard six weeks. I think the most remarkable case was of Jim's wife. She had been of a very boisterous nature, of always being dramatic. Before this meeting, she would run and shout and give her testimony. She'd put on a fine show. But now, she was the first to get through. She lay under the power of God some sixty hours. And then, oh, what a difference. The bold, hilarious conduct was all gone. She was now meek and quiet. She just walked the floor, her face bathed in tears. Not a word fell from her lips, just like a little country girl of eleven summers. And oh, I tell you, she lived salvation after that. She and her husband, and many, yes, many, many more, lay there until they were sanctified. Now, what do I mean by sanctified? Let me stop a moment. 
They mean the old nature, according to Romans 6, totally removed from their heart. Now, please, as I've shared this story with you, you see, obviously, the utter shallowness of the American church. The utter lack of prayer. The worldliness. The falseness of the church. And all of this has to change until we begin to honestly meet the conditions. Honestly meet the conditions of denying ourselves, of saying no, of taking up the cross, of being crucified with Christ. Do you understand? This is salvation we're talking about. Most in the Christian church are apostate. Most in American Christian church are apostate Christians, and they're hell-bound. What I've shared with you today, just a small part of this book by Guy Bevington, Remarkable Miracles, most of what I've shared with you is just a touch of the depth that the revival that is coming will bring. The revival that's coming is not going to be the polite little church entity. The false revival of laughter of kundalini spirits, demons, of laughing and making fun. The revival that God's going to bring to America is going to be with great weeping and sorrow and confession of sin and repentance, and meeting the conditions that Jesus laid down if you want to be his disciple. Have you been saved? I'm guessing that most of you listening to this broadcast have never been saved because you've never prayed through and met the conditions. And you have truly never been crucified with Jesus Christ. This is what's going to have to happen. You say to me, Pastor, are we going to have to get that way? Yes! This is what founded the Methodist Church. This is what Wesley taught. This is how he lived out the gospel. This is why the Methodist Church grew so rapidly under the anointing of the Holy Spirit with meeting the conditions that Jesus laid down for salvation. Many of you think you've gotten to God, but you haven't. Because when you pray, there's no answer. You're sick, but you go to the doctor. Because God won't answer your prayers. Almighty God. All I can do today is come and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us. For we have indeed been false to you and to each other. And we have measured our Christian life by looking at the worldly church. And we've not met the conditions you laid down. And Lord, I'm sorry. This message may not be very popular and people won't want to hear it. But this is what I'm asking you to do in the American church. 
I'm asking you to break us free from the deception of the devil of being apostate at heart with Jesus sprayed on the outside, of worshiping not you, Lord Jesus, but a cotton candy Jesus. Lord, please come. Please bring reality to our hearts and deal with our wickedness. Lord, I thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to hear your response to this message. Have you met the conditions? How eager are you to get to God? You've been told you don't need to do this to get to God. Just say a little sinner's prayer. They're lying to you. Write to me, National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That's National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. The book I've been reading from is Remarkable Miracles by Guy Bevington. If you have not read the book, I urge you to buy it. Order it online. It's available. I've worn out two copies. I also want to tell you we're now coming to the last days of this month and we're still a long way short. And I'm going to take next week for fasting and prayer, for laying before the Lord hour after hour, praying for you, for revival, praying for the finances, that I could continue this broadcast next month. We are not allowed to go in debt. So either this broadcast is covered or I go off the air. I don't think it's the Lord's will, and so I'm going to take that time to fast and pray and wait before the Lord. It's really revival that I'm interested in, not this broadcast. This is just a tool in the hand of the Lord. I'm interested in you getting getting right with Jesus and meeting the conditions. So I'm going to take next week to pray. Tomorrow will be our regular day of prayer. I invite you to call and pray. To cry out to God. I know he'll hear you. If you're sincere. We need to pray for America. For a great revival. Not some polite little deal. Not some... Seeker sensitive, sinner friendly. No, we need to pray for real and we need to meet the conditions of God. I love you, my brother and my sister. I'm praying for you. I'd like to hear from you. I'll talk to you soon. 
you from falling and to present you blame. 